Well, good morning to you all. Let's bow our head as we, heads as we come to God's Word. Heavenly Father, as we come to your Word today, we pray that through your Holy Spirit, you would fill us not just with head understanding, but with heart understanding and hands following. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So our text today is from the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 17 to 34. If you could please turn there now. If you're using an electronic Bible, I'll be reading from the New King James Version. And in any event, as usual, I will have the verses on the overhead. A few years ago, I was having dinner with some friends at a buffet restaurant in Manukau. And while we were eating, I noticed another group arrive. I'm pretty sure it was dad, mum, their teenager daughter and her boyfriend. I didn't pay them too much notice after their arrival, but I did happen to notice the said boyfriend go back for seconds. And what he did, it almost caused me to choke with laughter on my steak. Now, there are a number of ways that buffet food can be kept warm. In this case, there was a, a nice plastic cover positioned just over the food, and its height was such that you could use your arms to serve yourself to your heart's delight under the cover while looking down through it from a normal standing position. But somehow, this was lost on our hero. He was on a fries mission. Lots of fries, remember, teenage boy. So to get at them, he stuck the plate and his head underneath the perspex and served himself some more chips. Now, of course, that required some interesting body positions. It seemed that nobody had taken the time to explain proper table manners to this poor fellow, and I can only imagine the conversation that Dad might have had with his daughter later that evening. On a first reading, our text today seems to be mostly about the same topic, table manners, and most specifically table manners in the church during the Lord's Supper. However, it would be a grave mistake to leave it at that because it has a great deal more importance than simply that. It tells us how the unity all Christians have as sinners saved by grace should be reflected in everything that we do. Now, ordinarily at this point I'd read the whole text, but this is a very long passage, so we'll just read it as we go. I'll start uh, to read just to verse 22. Conduct at the Lord's Supper. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating... Each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Now this is a big piece of scripture with lots of possibility for sermons. And obviously we don't have time to dissect it in that way today. So this morning... We'll just follow the principal theme through. Paul is not a happy chappy. Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. 
As helpful as it is to have the addition of chapter and verse to Scripture for reference purposes, it can also lead us astray, because we might be tempted to disconnect what we are reading now from what has come before. And let's not do that, because in this instance, it seems that Paul has completely, completely reversed a previous opinion. If we look back to chapter 11, verse 2, it says, Now I praise you, now I praise you, brethren, that you remember me in all things and keep the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Yet here just a short while later, in 11.17, we read, I do not praise you. I think that might have been like a bucket of cold water to the Corinthians' faces. One minute, hooray, Paul is praising us. Next minute, splash. Now the seriousness of his accusation is reflected in the Greek term that's used for giving instruction. It is the word Parigello, which means to hand on or pass on an announcement from one person to another who's right next to them, usually with the idea of a command or a charge. It binds a person to make the proper response to an instruction. Parigello often was used in the context of a military command and demanded that the subordinate obey the order from the superior and required unhesitating and unqualified obedience. Splash! What I'm telling you today is not a matter of choice. Paul's intention with, the, was, with this bit was not to provide some options for window dressing, but to strongly instruct everyone what every body of believers must be doing as normal everyday practice. Well, the first lesson we can immediately take from the tone of this verse is that healthy church life is not going to be a box of fluffies at all times. And that might not be what some of us wanted to hear right now because we came here to sing some encouraging songs and hear an uplifting message and then go home refreshed and renewed. Sorry. Sometimes being part of a body of believers means getting that incredible and indescribable feeling that only praising God together with our brothers and sisters brings. But at other times, being in a body also means corporately accepting a deserved telling off. There are errors that from time to time affect all in the church body, and so they need to be called out in public. And although they may seem to be a negative moment in the life of the church, they are also a form of praise to God, because through them we are reminded who is king, and we are realigned to his purposes and his plans. So how should we respond? Well, provided that the sound telling off is... Scripture, the right thing to do is to take it on the chin and to deal with the problem as soon as possible. There's no space for yelling about rights or feelings. This is the reality of living out Hebrews 13:17. It says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. Let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. So we must accept that from time to time, body life means body discipline. And that's what's happening to the Corinthian church right here. What is Paul's specific difficulty with their conduct? Verse 17. Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. What does it mean when he says you come together? Is that socially or just for church? For what purpose and how many of you? Now, of course, the text answers most of these questions as we read, but just let me give you some background to this. 
At the time this letter was written, it was a common social custom for large groups of people to come together for a meal. And one way of doing this was for each participant to bring some food, which was then pooled and shared. And that was called back then an eranos. And it's something we still do today, although it has the much more interesting name finger lunch. Most people have ten, and so it would be rude not to share one or two of them. The early church meant to eat in the same way, except it was called an agape, or love feast. The whole church would come to it bringing what food they could, which was then pooled, and they sat down for a common meal. We do that today. It was and is a fantastic way of building Christian fellowship. And it also appears from what we read here that back then, part of what happened at that time would be a celebration of the Lord's Supper. And that would be a very natural thing for them to do, because if you think about it, that's exactly how it all began with Jesus and the disciples around a common table. The Greek word used for come together gives us another important insight into the core of Paul's argument. It is sunokomai, which means to get together for a specific purpose, to assemble or together. And that probably sounds exactly like the meal that I've just described, but there is an important difference. In 1 Corinthians 7 and Matthew 1, we see the same Greek word used in the context of sexual intimacy. But it's there to indicate the intensity of the affair, not the act. So by joining these two ideas together, we gain the understanding that the sort of meetings that the Corinthian church is accused of failing in are the ones where they are supposed to come together very intimately with one mind or purpose. <laughs> Clearly they aren't. Now perhaps this condition of intimacy raises a question for you. Let's try to answer that now. Here's the question. If good behavior is only required at intimate gatherings, then it's okay to ignore everything we read here if we're having a New Year's party for fun at our mate's house. Yes? No. When a person becomes a Christian, they invariably and immediately become part of a larger body. The body of Christ. They become his hands and his feet working for his glory. And this is very familiar imagery that's common elsewhere in Paul's writing. So wherever a believer goes, they stay part of that body and they represent that body. And therefore it is never appropriate to behave in a way that does not honor the whole since that body was formed by and belongs to God. Of course, there are varying degrees of success in this godly expression of body life. Some obey the Lord first, and some obey their flesh first, and some sit somewhere in between. Paul acknowledges this here when he talks about divisions and differences in verses 18 and 19. That's not to say that he approves of the differences, but he is pragmatic about them, and amazingly, also grudgingly even manages to find a glimmer of relative good in them. If there are divisions and differences, he says, at least that helps to expose who is behaving in a godly way and who is not, and therefore who needs correction or not. We can see this in verse 19. For there must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Now we should note that although Paul has managed to find something worthwhile in this otherwise bad situation, he is definitely not content to let it persist in that same state. The unity of God's church is at the core of his dismay, and for very good reason. 
We'll talk about that a bit more in a minute, but it's very clear as we read on that there's no way that the situation is going to be left like that. Look at verse 20 now, where we see the specific accusations rolled out. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it's not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? <laughs> I do not praise you. What is supposed to be an agape feast, a supreme expression of love and unity of the body, the reality of the Corinthian church, is quite the opposite. There are cliques, and thus for there's exclusion. People who have are not sharing with those who have. People are not showing restraint in their consumption of alcohol. It's a giant mess. Shall I praise you in this, Paul writes? No, of course not. I do not praise you. So what is he going to do to repair his discontentment, this problem in this church? The next few verses are an interesting and powerful way of addressing the problem. Rather than go head on at each error and explain why it's wrong and then give instructions to fix it, Paul instead recounts the procedure he was given for the Lord's Supper, what we call communion today. He includes Jesus' very words from that day so that no one can dispute their authority. <laughs> time out. I'm calling a time out now. We're going to do something unusual. As Paul, as Colin mentioned earlier, I can see he's wincing. <laughs> We're going to celebrate communion right now in the middle of the sermon. And I want to do that so that we see that its significance is more than just words on a page in your Bible. So that we can reflect on what it means for us today and our lives going forward. And I'm conscious that we need to change gear while we do that. So I'm just going to ask you to bow your heads for a few moments just to put yourself in the right space for this special and holy time. Let's spend a few moments in individual prayer. Holy Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come together to share this remembrance of what Christ has done for us. Lord, we pray that it would always be a reminder and inspiration of our debt to you and a reminder of your love for us so that we would always be your hands and feet in the world. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So let me read from our passage today. For I receive from the Lord which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me.
In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now we can go back to our text. I wonder why Paul chose to address the communal error at Corinth by reminding them of Jesus' instruction at the Last Supper. Here's a clue. Anyone? What was the reason that I gave when I asked just now that we take the cup together? Unity. Unity. It was about unity. Exactly. In the context of a reminder of the need for unity of the church, I can't think of a better wake-up call. Since the Lord's Supper is the ultimate leveler, the strongest possible reminder that all who celebrate it properly are exactly the same. It is a union of condemned sinners who have been saved by grace. No personal merit, no value in works, only Christ's blood applied to each and every person in exactly the same way. It doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, if you high, hold high office or none at all, if you are learned or perhaps not so learned. None of those earthly things matter at the Lord's table. Grace and grace alone. Christ and Christ alone is what gives us a seat there. And this is why it was completely inappropriate in any circumstance for the people of Corinth to have been behaving as though some were better than others especially not while they meet in the union of remembrance. Paul continues to heap on the coal so as to drive home the seriousness of the matter. Verse 27, it's more than just a matter of principle here. There are consequences. Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. For if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord, that we may not be condemned with the world. Friends, when we read about deliberately being guilty of the Lord's body and blood in verse 27, it ought to be confrontational. It ought to be clear that as we read on further to verse 30, that the matter of, the, of unity in the body life of the church is of the highest importance to God. And since that it is such value to Him, there must be serious consequences for getting it wrong. To make this lesson personal, Stop for a moment and, and think about what it might have been like for the omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent Son of God. All that power to take on human flesh and then to suffer and die to pay for someone else's offenses against Him. Your offenses. He paid for you, although He has never done any evil. You, on the other hand, have done evil and do evil and will do more evil. 
Yet Christ's blood covers all that for you and you and you and literally billions of yous. That's the value of Jesus' blood and body as seen from God's perspective. What about your own view? The body and blood of Jesus has saved you from eternal death and punishment. It has restored your relationship with God permanently. You have the certainty of eternal life. Not that silly picture on a cloud with wings and a harp. But as a living perfect human on a restored earth. And you could gain none of those things by your own efforts. Christ did it all. Now ask yourself, with that cost and that consequence, how would I like to be guilty of the body and blood of Jesus? It's not a good feeling, is it? Yet I know that I am oftentimes so. I know that I've stuck with my little group of friends during tea and not gone to talk to the newcomer. I know that I have scandalized with others over the latest church gossip. And I know that I have seen the need of those around me and not helped when I should have. I must not take these sins of selfishness with me either to the communion table or to the communion of believers. I must confess them to the Lord and commit to doing better in the matter of unity as the very center of body life for the principal reason that unity is an echo of the Lord's very own character. The Trinity is a relationship of perfect unity between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as His earthly representatives formed in His own likeness, God naturally and wholeheartedly desires the same unity for His church. Now we've spoken about this before, but I'm going to bring it to you again. There's a theological term for this unity of the trinity it's called perichoresis what does perichoresis mean if you know some greek you might have an idea but i found this excellent quote that explains it rather better than i could it's from an american methodist minister and he writes the theologians in the early church tried to describe this wonderful reality that we call trinity If any of you have ever been to a Greek wedding, you may have seen their distinctive way of dancing. It's called perichoresis. There are not two dancers, but at least three. And they start to go in circles, weaving in and out in this very beautiful pattern of motion. They start to go faster and faster and faster, all the while staying in perfect rhythm and sync with each other. Eventually they are dancing so quickly, yet so effortlessly, effortlessly that as you look at them they just become a blur the individual identities are part of a larger dance the early church fathers and mothers looked at that dance and said that's what the trinity is like it's a harmonious set of relationships in which there is mutual giving and receiving this relationship is called love and it's what the trinity is all about the perichoresis is the dance of love Through Christ, we have been granted the privilege of joining that dance. But because we are human, we have to work hard at getting the footwork right so that nobody gets their toes crushed. One way of doing this is to ask some hard questions, both corporately and personally. We must ask ourselves, 
How does our church fare in this dance of love? What do we do well? What do we do poorly? What could we do as a body to change what needs to be changed? And then we must ask ourselves, how do I fare in this dance of love with my fellow believers? What do I do well? What do I do poorly? What could I do to change what needs to be changed? And why must we change? Is there purpose as well as desire in God's heart? Well, we find some answers right here at the end of our passage. Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks or to the church of God, just as I please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of many, that they may be saved. Friends, firstly, we dance to seek the glory of God, the glory and thanks and honor that He fully deserves for making us and everything around us and then for saving us when we made a mess of all that through our own sin. And secondly, we are not just dancing by ourselves in isolation. We always have an audience around us, an audience of lost people who do not yet know Christ. Let them see in our dance our harmony, our unity, that perichoresis of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and crave the same thing so that they too may be saved to the greater glory of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, one of the accusations that's so often aimed at your church is that we don't agree. We're not in unity. And unfortunately, Lord, that's often true. But Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit will move in our hearts to change that. Not just for us here in this building but for your church in the world. That's a huge thing to ask. <laughs> and only you can accomplish it. But we pray that you would speak to us and help us to become part of a greater thing. Let us show the world your unity and your love. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen.